0: Oh, good morning again, everyone. I have been uh, really excited to uh, dive into this study through the book of Esther with you for quite some time. Uh, one of the things uh, about the book of Esther is that it, it reads like a novel. You have uh, all of these uh, very interesting characters in there. You've got an extraordinarily powerful, yet completely foolish king. You, you've got a a a feisty queen, you've got a a, a young woman who is beautiful and courageous and she's kind of the the heroine of the account. Uh, You have an evil henchman, Uh, you have a a faithful behind the scenes mentor and you you have this riveting plot that has been the inspiration for, for lots of different videos and movies throughout the years. And because it's a narrative, if we really want to understand uh, the book of Esther, we, we have to look at it in its entirety. You can't just look at it piece by piece by piece. Because if, if we don't, if we simply read uh, through Esther in these small little si- snippets that, that we're really forced to do on a, on a Sunday morning here, we, we will ultimately see it as if it's just a bunch of moral teachings. So if you just have the little picture that we give you each and every week, it's going to be really quick, you're going to really quickly decide that it's just all about these, the morality. It's about do these things and don't do these things. But, but if we look at it from the entirety of the book, we are going to discover that it has this overarching theme that God is always at work, even when it seems that he is not At work. You see, the book of Esther, it is a a reminder to to you. It's a reminder to me who are slugging our way through this challenging life that is filled with sin and brokenness and disappointment and pain. Uh, A a life uh, that it's telling us that even when God is, is silent, even when he, he seems uninvolved, even when he appears absent, that, that in reality, he is at work. And he's at work for, for his glory, and he's ultimately also at work for our good. Now, this is challenging for people. It's challenging for me. Because we want God to be actively, visibly at work in our lives. We, we want the God of, who walks with Adam in the garden. And, and we want the God who, who calls uh, Abraham to himself, we, we want the God that, that, that speaks to Moses out of the, the burning bush or, or the God who, who rescue, rescues the Israelites by, by parting the Red Sea. We, we want the, the God who steps in and, and saves the woman who's caught in adultery. That's the God we want. We want the very visible God. We want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is working on our behalf. That's who we want. But more times than not, the God that we get, it's the God of Esther. The one who is quietly working behind the scenes. Who's taking those selfish, sinful, painful, and even brutal things that we do to others and others do to us, and in the hiddenness of his providence, He's doing exactly what he promised to do in Romans eight twenty eight, working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. You see, God, he is always at work, even when it seems like he is not at work. So in order to keep from the trap of making Esther into nothing more than a collection of moral lessons, we we need to understand the narrative completely up front. So, So there's really was, I had two alternatives here. One, I could have just sat up here or stood up here and read the entire book to you this morning. I could have done that. I guess there's actually three alternatives. We could have given you a homework assignment last week and told you to read through the entire book. But I, I thought we would do something a little bit easier. We're going to take the, the next nine minutes of the service. And there is a, an organization out there called the Bible Project. And the Bible Project makes these amazing videos that, that summarize books of the Bible. And uh, we've uh, gone ahead and uh, procured uh, one of those videos, the video on Esther. So we're going to run that for you here this morning. So uh, sit back. And enjoy discovering the forest that exists among the trees.
1: The book of Esther. It's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. And the main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther, and then there's the king of Persia who's something of a drunken pushover in this story, and then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses. And so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now, after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now, right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it the God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now in what unfolds we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king, in that moment, orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive and Esther informs the king that first of all she's Jewish and second that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai who saved his life and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink so when he hears this news he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews, so the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, poor him. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now with his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal right down to the details so the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder of which Mordecai and Esther are a part, not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story is not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example, as if it endorses all of their behavior, but they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working. And to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about.
0: a little bit better than Mike Leonzo sitting here and reading for the next 30 minutes. So, Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to open it up to. We're gonna go to Esther chapter one. We're gonna spend some time in verses 10 through 22 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's uh, Bibles on the tables around the room. Just ask your neighbor to pass one down to you. Uh, If you do use one of the Bibles that we have in the room, you'll find uh, Esther one on page 410. And if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, Would you please do so? Esther chapter one, starting in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumun, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who serve in the presence of King Asuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king uh, before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And this, At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being a bunch of other hard names to pronounce which we're gonna skip over. <laughs> the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's fe- uh, face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law that is to be done to Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ashuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then uh, Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the province of King Asheras. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ashuerus has commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let the royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never to come before King Ashuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin promised. He sent letters to all the royal providences, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of God. May be seated. Now, as we have learned from Pastor Ben last week, and then ultimately from uh, the video here, King Ashuerus, who's also known as King Xerxes, was the, the most powerful ruler of his time. His kingdom stretched from, from what is modern day India westward to the northern part of modern-day Sudan. And he was crazy rich, and this dude was not shy about flaunting his wealth. So much so that he holds this lavish, 180-day, alcohol-fueled banquet, which he invites all of his government officials, all of his servants, all the military leaders from across his vast kingdom. And uh, this half-year uh, kegger <laughs> wasn't, uh, wasn't other-focused. You know, the purpose of this thing wasn't to bring all of these officials in and say, thank you for your service. No, th- this, this Uh, 180-day-long bastion of debauchery uh, was so focused. It was one of these, let me show you all my stuff party. And he has so much stuff that it takes 180 days to parade all of this stuff through the capital city. But it doesn't end there. Once the, the 180 days have passed, The king throws a a second party, and and this time all of the residents of the capital city are invited to the party, perhaps to make up for the fact that their city had been overrun by people for the last 180 days, but but he brings all of the residents of the the capital city of Susa, which was his summer palace, together. This party, it it lasts seven days long and has a theme, and the theme was pretty much this. drink whatever you want, as much as you want, for as long as you want. And that's exactly what they did. And so for seven days, all of the people are getting drunk. And uh, especially the men, and and, and in that culture, uh, You know, the women were brought to these parties, and so the the women are are with the men at this seven-day-long party. And at the end of the party, on on the last day, one of the traditions of uh, the Persians, when they had banquets, was uh, they would bring in uh, dancing girls and concubines. Now, at this point, this is where the wives get out of Dodge, you know, the wives do not want to be surrounded, seeing their husbands oogle dancing girls and get engaged with concubines. And so the women would leave. And in this particular case, they're able to make their way to another banquet, which is being held by, by the queen, Queen Vashti, for the women. And in verse 9, we read this: Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged the king Asherah. Now, it's important to, to read that last little clause there about who the palace actually belonged to. This wasn't their palace. It was his palace. He's the one in charge. She is, she's just kind of along for the ride. Now, in the next couple verses, things begin to get very, very interesting. Look at verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Eshwars to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples, peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. Now, Here's the king. He's drunk out of his mind, and he makes an incredibly stupid decision. He loses his mind and decides, I've shown everything of value in my kingdom. Now let me display the most valuable thing in the entire kingdom. And, and so he thinks it's a great idea to, to bring his wife into the end of the party where there are all these dancing girls, where the men are engaged with concubines doing unmentionable things in public. He thinks that, that it's a good idea to bring his queen in to be the object of this crazed show and tell. Now, the king even in his drunken state, understands that the queen is not going to be very excited about this. And so he doesn't just send one advisor. He doesn't send two advisors. He sends seven eunuchs to bring one woman to the party. We we are talking, this is like serious overkill here. This is like government FBI raids where like, you know, grandma has been playing a lottery wrong and like 50 FBI agents show up or something like that, all right? So let's see what happens. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So Vashti, she takes one look at, at the king's Posse of castrated clowns. I have pause for laughter right there, all right? And she says, Are you out of your minds? It's going to take more than the king's seven dwarves to get me to go to that party. And so she refuses to go. now, when, when Doc and Bashful and Sleepy and Sneezy and Happy and Dopey and Grumpy report back to the king, the dude, he loses his mind. And it's here where it's tempting to look at the book of Esther as some moral guide as to what you should do and what you shouldn't do and then to use various Bible passages to support your conclusions. So let me give you a few examples of how some pastors in the past have used Esther as nothing more than a moral teaching, and and to be completely honest, I, I should include myself in that in the early days of living water. Here are a couple moral conclusions that people would come to out of the book of Esther. They're not wrong conclusions, but, but, but they're, they're not what the Bible is trying to teach us here. Number one, don't get drunk, because if you do, you're going to do stupid things. Duh. And then, uh, we typically what we would do is we would pull out a passage to support that, and, and the go-to passage, whenever it comes to drinking, is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So that's one of the moral teachings that that people would draw from this part of the passage. The second one is this. Women, and especially wives, should be honored by men and not disrespected. And then the go-to passage for that would be Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that it might present he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. What the apostle Paul is teaching us is this, that that husbands are supposed to love their wives, and it's the husband's job to present the wife pure and radiant before the God of the universe. We're not to tear her down, break her down, hurt her. We're to lift her up and to bring healing and hope and love into her life. And while it's absolutely true that when one gets drunk or high, they do stupid, sinful things and in the process hurt themselves and others, and while it is absolutely horrific and sinful for men to mistreat women, neither of those moral lessons are what God is trying to get across here in the book of Esther. Now at the same time, others have used Queen Vashti's refusal to be paraded around like a trophy at a king's frat party for for political and social purposes. So some people look at Queen Vashti and they've got an agenda. They've got a a social agenda. They've got a political agenda. And so, so some, for instance, like modern feminists, they have praised Vashti as the heroine who stands up to the king. And then others, some Christian fundamentalists, they've bashed Vashti because she didn't submit to her husband. And both of those miss the overall point of the passage. So what is God trying to teach us with the things that we just read here? It's this. Worldly power is not as powerful as it appears. Here, you've got the king of the most powerful nation on earth, King Asherah. He is the most powerful man bar none. He's so powerful that it has taken him six months to display all of his wealth. He is so powerful that just prior to this account, he, he has uh, defeated all these other armies. He's expanded his kingdom to the, known ed- the, the edges of the known world. There's seemingly nothing that he can do except get his wife to come to a party. That's the point of this. The point is that worldly power is not as powerful as it first appears. Now, it is easy to look at the powers of this world and what they do and don't do and become extremely discouraged. It happens to me. You don't have to you know, read the newspaper, watch the news, listen to the radio, check on things online to get very discouraged about what powerful people do in this world. I mean, you just look at in the news right now. Russia invading Ukraine. North Korea acquiring a nuclear arsenal. OPEC manipulating the supply of oil so the prices are high. China committing all of these human rights violations and nobody says anything about them. The, the, The Taliban Persecuting women. ISIS killing Christians. Government leaders at all levels seemingly getting away with everything. Buying votes, offering bribes, embezzling money, lying about their qualifications, breaking promises, misusing classified documents, twisting the Constitution, abusing their power, and passing laws that go directly against God's word. All of that seems so unstoppable. That they're so incredibly powerful. And there's nothing we can do to stop them. And that's just the half of it. In the midst of all of this abuse of power, it's easy for us to fall into the trap. If only my political party would be in the majority, that would fix everything. If only the the Supreme Court would rule the way that I want them to rule. If if only the the school board would enact the the guidelines that I support. If only the people that I like will get the power, then things will get better. I mean, how many times have we put all of our hope and for that matter, all of our fear in those who are in power? But here is the truth that the unseen God of Esther is trying to teach us. It's this, worldly power is not nearly as powerful as it first appears. No king, no president, no court, no legislature, no commission, no board, Heck, for that matter, no ex-spouse, no former boyfriend or girlfriend, no boss, no coach, no professor, no teacher is as powerful as they ultimately appear. You see, every one of them, one day, is going to have to bow their knee to the one who is all-powerful. Listen to the words of Psalm chapter two. If you ever get to speak in in, in front of like a a, a legislative body, let's just say like a local school board calls you up and and, and they want you to do like an invocation. Use Psalm 2 here, you'll make a lot of friends. (laughs) Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you, you rulers, you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If we think that we're all that, if we think we're the big deal, if we're terrified by those who think themselves to be the big deal, we would do well to regularly reflect on the words of Psalm chapter two because it certainly brings life into perspective. There is only one that is all powerful. The rest, my friends, they're just pretenders. And that one is Jesus Christ he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, and it's at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And he laughs at those who thinks they're all powerful. He looks at Washington, D.C., and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and the U.N., and he laughs They all think they're powerful. Jesus says, you do not even understand what powerful is. So when things aren't going the way that we desire, when sin is on the move, when the evil one seems to be winning, when we are tempted to bow our knee to the powers of the age, remember that worldly power is not nearly as powerful as it appears, and God is always at work, even when it seems like He is not at work. Okay, so let, let's keep going. Let's see how the queen or the king actually responds to uh, Vashti's refusal to be paraded around like a trophy. And the next couple of verses, which I'm not going to read. Uh, We find the king consulting his advisors as to how he should deal with his queen who's not doing what he wants her to do. Now, I want you to think about the absurdity of this for a moment. Here you have a drunken king, and he goes to his drunken advisors. And he asks them what they think should be done about his wife's unwillingness to come to a frat party and be oogled by his drunken friends. That's what's going on here. This is crazy. It gets even crazier. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the providences of King Ashuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with content, since they will say King Ashuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persian media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same thing to all the queen's, or king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. You talk about blowing a, a little domestic dispute out of proportion. How in the world is the queen's unwillingness to be disgraced at a party going to spread throughout the entire known world. How's that going to happen? It's pretty tough for things to go viral when, when your means of communication is a guy on a horse carrying a handwritten letter. That's pretty hard to do. And even if it does, does it mean that, that, that every woman who learns of her refusal is, is going to rebel against her husband? But the, the lunacy does not stop there. Look at 19 through 21. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never to come again before King Ashuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom for it is vast all the women give honor all the women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike this advice pleased the king and the princess and the king did as mamukin prom- proposed so here are all these guys and, and what is their fear their their fear is that that All of the women of of the empire are going to become card-carrying members of the fifth century uh, version of the National Organization of Women. That's what they're worried about here. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking this is going to be crazy. And the king's best advisor comes to him and says, kick her to the curb. And then put out this edict so that everyone will obey their husbands. And ironically, doing this is going to ensure the very thing that they don't want to have happen, happen. And that everybody finds out what Vashti did. By sending this thing out and telling everybody that Vashti did, the very thing they don't want is ultimately going to happen in the first place. Now, not surprisingly, the drunken king, he says, this is a good idea. Verse 12, Asherah sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of our and speak according to the language of his people. Once again, it's easy to look at these verses and moralize them. It would be easy to say, you know, when you're drunk, you're gonna make bad decisions. It would be easy to say, don't turn a minor domestic dispute into a, a national crisis. Let's not do that. And while those conclusions are true, they're not the point of the narrative. You see, the point is not only that worldly power power isn't as powerful as it appeared, but worldly wisdom is not nearly as wise as it thinks it is. You see, the king gathers together his best and his brightest. and, And they're lit. They're smashed. They're feeling no pain. And he seeks their wisdom. They come up with this insane plan. Now, this is crazy stupid. Why would anyone do this? Well, here's a little bit of the backstory. In the Persian Empire, it was believed that if you got drunk, you communed with the spirits better and got wisdom. That's what they believed. Now, I was talking to someone the other day about this, and, uh, you know, when, when I was growing up, I, I, I was a great kid. My parents are laughing at that right now from the front. But, yeah, I, I, I pretty much, I, be, I obeyed my mom and dad pretty well. I, I didn't drink because both my grandmother and grandfather were crazy alcoholics. I saw the destruction it created in our family, so I, I didn't touch alcohol. I didn't smoke because that just looked like that wasn't going to be good. I didn't do drugs because I was terrified. Okay, so I, I don't know a whole lot about those kinds of things. But I'm talking to this one person the other day, and I'm telling him this, and, and, and the guy says to me, you know, that's exactly what we believed when we would smoke marijuana and seek to get stoned. That, that we would be enlightened, that, that we would think better, that we would think clearer. And so, and so th- this This 5th century B.C. idea has moved all the way to the 21st century. So I guess it's not as ludicrous as I originally thought because people actually believe this. But you and I know differently. You and I know that that when we want to seek wisdom, we're never going to find wisdom at the bottom of a bottle. We're, We're never going to find wisdom at the end of a blunt We're we're never going to find it if we look for it from worldly sources. We seek it from God. And Jesus' brother James speaks to this very issue when he says this. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then he adds in James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That, brothers and sisters, is completely contrary to the wisdom that these guys offered the king. You see, the wisdom of James 3 is the wisdom that comes from God. And it is far greater than the flawed wisdom of this world, whether one is drunk or sober. And this brings us to the final thing that we learn from this passage. Not only is worldly power not as powerful as it appears, and not only is worldly wisdom as wise as it appears, but God's distance is not as it appears either. You see, like the rest of the narrative, in these passages, no mention of God. No mention of prayer. No no mention of the Torah. No mention of prophets. God is seemingly silent. The question becomes, is he? Listen to what King David says in Psalm 139 about this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other parts of the sea, uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David's saying, God, you're everywhere. Uh, You're inescapable. Even when you don't look like you're there, you're actually there. And then in John, Jesus says this, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And although God is not seen in this passage, he is certainly present and he is at work. And 2,500 years ago, in the midst of a drunken banquet, God was using the decisions made by an egocentric king And his queen and his drunken trusted advisors. God didn't initiate those decisions, God didn't prevent them, but God certainly used them. God allowed Ashuerus to get drunk. He gave Asheras the freedom to dishonor his wife. He gave Vashti the freedom to disobey her husband. God allowed the anger of Asheras to flow freely. He watched as the king's advisors gave him bad advice, which ultimately creates a vacancy in the royal family so that a young Jewish woman can rise to be king who would one day be used by God to save the Jewish people from being slaughtered, thus ensuring that some 500 years later, a baby boy could be born to a Jewish teenager who's a virgin. And that baby boy would one day die upon a cross and rise from the dead, who's your Savior and my Savior. So make no mistake about it. When God seems to be most distant, when he seems to be most quiet, when he seems to be most involved in your life, it's likely that he's doing some of the best work you can ever possibly imagine. Work that you may not know about for weeks or months or years or decades or perhaps even your own lifetime. Work that will always be for his glory and ultimately for your good. So take heart, be encouraged. It's just as Jesus said, God is always at work to this very day, even when we can't see it. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are true and real and present and engaged and involved. And and Lord, we confess to you that there are so many times Lord God, that we get so frustrated with you because you seem to be so incredibly quiet, so incredibly distant. Yet, Heavenly Father, your word shows us time and time again that you are actively engaged in this world. Let us not be like the deist who who said that, that, that God started things and steps back and just lets them go. But Lord, let us be like those who are students of your word, who know that you are living and active at work and powerful. God, be with those in our church family who are, who are struggling right now, Heavenly Father, who don't understand the, the circumstances that they find themselves in. Dear God, would you encourage them this day through the kindness of your spirit? And Lord, while they may not see you working, Lord, may they trust your word and know that you are and Lord, when we get on the other side of things and when we can see clearly in the rearview mirror at the work that you have done, let us never cease worshiping you and praising you for your goodness. And now, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, as we prepare to uh, take this offering, God, would you uh, use it for your good and use it for your glory? Father, may it, uh, these resources never be squandered, uh, Lord, may they always be used so that your gospel may be, go forth. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.